Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. To mark International Women's Day, we're dedicating all seven days this week to examining the challenges and triumphs of women around the world through art, sports, literature, and politics. To round off this special week of programming, we're bringing you this final thought-provoking conversation about who defines feminism. Often in the Western world, to help understand the history of feminism, we refer to the model of different waves, which sets out to define the trajectory of certain fights and milestones, such as the right to vote and access to contraception. But what does this version of history include, and who does it exclude? In this discussion, Professor Lucy DeLapp and Trita Lacani discuss the societal structures around the world which have oppressed women throughout history, as well as the intersection of the state and feminism, and the need to recognise the pluralistic nature of feminism in order to achieve a better future for everyone. Our host for this conversation is broadcaster and academic Philippa Thomas. Here's Philippa with more. Today, we're delving into the fascinating and complex history of feminism, examining the different waves of the movement and the achievements that it's brought for women. At the same time, we're also acknowledging the challenges that feminism has faced and the people it hasn't always included. The achievements have been many, including the right to vote, increased access to education and employment opportunities, the legalization of birth control and abortion. The challenges have also been many, resistance and opposition from without and division within, not least from this sprawling movement's internal systemic failings and divisions. Well, to discuss all of this and more, I'm joined today by Lucy DeLapp, who is Professor in Modern British and Gender History at the University of Cambridge. Lucy is a Fellow of Murray Edwards College. And Shrita Lakhani, Researcher and Educator at the SOAS University of London's Centre for Gender Studies. Lucy, Shrita, welcome to Intelligence Squared. And Lucy, if I can begin with you, even defining feminism is problematic is open to different interpretations. And the metaphor that we're choosing to explore today for Intelligence Squared is that of waves of feminism. And I would like us to to explore together the different waves and how they are commonly understood and what they've left out. But first, can I come to you for your thoughts on that metaphor, that way of approaching the history of feminism? The wave metaphor does quite a lot of work for us, and it's really helpful to have a way of kind of reaching back historically and thinking about the different questions feminists might have been asking. That's obviously helpful when people ask for a definition, because we'll always have to say, well, it it meant different things in, in different time periods. But the problem with the wave metaphor is it's almost doing too much work. So it tends to make us look at specific moments. So for example, the um, Seneca Falls Conference in the United States uh, in the 19th century, or we might look to the militant suffragists in in Britain in the in the early 20th century. Those seem to be kind of you know founding wave moments, but we don't look in between, and um, we we miss a lot of the richness of um, different kinds of feminist activism, and in particular, I think the waves metaphor tends to make us look to the United States or to Europe. And we don't therefore get a sense of the kind of the, the, the global diversity of women's activisms around gender justice. So the wave metaphor definitely like directs our gaze too strongly to specific places. And it also makes us feel as though everyone at those moments of wave, kind of the waves crashing in on the beach, as if they all agreed with each other. 
Whereas actually, even at those moments of kind of peak wave activism, there were lots of different interpretations at play and women don't necessarily agree on what the goal should be. Um, I think that Lucy kind of very much put it perfectly. When we look at the wave metaphor, we kind of forget to look at who's defining the waves and who's defining feminism. And by even defining what feminism is, we're also defining what womanhood is and who gets access to feminism, whose voices are heard and whose histories are heard. And when we look at the waves in particular, we see a huge marginalization of feminist thought, feminist activity that happened outside of the West, especially um, in the global south or against like the empire um but also we forget some of the complicities and the collusions of some of the very women fighting for feminist or women's liberation in the west um who were also complicit in especially in the first wave and the second wave in empire and colonization and the active oppression of people around the world as well. So the wave metaphor invisibilizes almost other forms of thinking about feminism and narrows feminism to this idea of just for gender equality rather than seeing feminism as a form of justice work. And the last thing I want to do is narrow the debate. So what I'm suggesting that we do over this half hour or so is articulate a little more clearly what the different waves in the model are represent are, are, are seen as represented what's what's agreed about them uh, and their landmark moments and then come back to where they may fail us who they may exclude and who gets to decide and define today if we're looking at some of the key turning points in the in the history of feminism um, Lucy can I come back to you first on perhaps the easiest wave to talk about perhaps the first and the right to vote there's nothing easy about the right to vote okay. as a starting point yeah. <laughs> uh, because we could put it back to the early 19th century and the kind of extraordinary ferment that came in the in the wake of the Haitian the American and the French revolutions they set up ideas about who should speak who could be a citizen uh, what a constitution looked like what a acceptable system of authority should be that just gave so many opportunities for people to think differently, whether that was the utopian socialists who were creating new communities that rejected ideas of marriage and property, or whether it was, you know, ideas around uh, voting that spanned really contentious questions around like racial ex exclusion and enslavement. I mean, you know, there's, there's a ferment of ideas there. So the kind of typical starting point, right, 1848, the Seneca Falls Conference, where white women predominantly white women got together to discuss women's voting rights in, in the United States. That's just one possible starting point amongst amongst many. And there's no particular reason why we should start in the US when, you know, the extraordinary things were happening in other parts of the world where both women and men were contesting women's exclusion. Think about the, you know, the kind of the world turned on its head in Saint-Domingue or Haiti, where like the existing power structures were being completely overturned. So yeah, I don't think there's, there's a kind of clear starting point to the first wave. But for the sake of our conversation, let's, let's, let's start with the right to vote and the um, the claims that were newly being made around women's right to vote. Uh, on what basis were those claims being made? On the basis of sometimes things that don't really add up to our 
present day assumptions of what feminism might look like. So women were sometimes calling for enfranchisement on the basis of property. And that was not a particularly radical idea because it was essentially saying, well, the status quo might stay the same, but propertied women should be part of the the citizenship body. But that was also being contested at the time by people who were saying, no, it's on the basis of your human existence that you should be enfranchised. So some quite radical calls for the vote and then some quite kind of socially conservative calls for for vote in the 19th century. And I meant easier to define in retrospect rather than easier to achieve, but even that is problematic, as as you've pointed out. And Shrita, that idea of who are the first feminists, even the where did it begin question is huge and devolving in itself. I mean, it really is. And I don't think there is an answer to it, kind of as Lucy has pointed out, because even what does feminism mean is different from person to person. But I think that Lucy, the point Lucy made around who is predominantly seen as part of the first wave is important to think about um, because it does also tell us a lot about the kind of movement that was happening at that moment in time, in particular highlighting that it was mostly white women of a certain class that were predominantly talking about having access to voting right and so there's an entire class element as well and therefore we're seeing womanhood being defined in that particular moment in that group of people as white and as upper class right Um, and if you didn't have access to those you weren't necessarily seen as a woman or seen as someone that should have the right to vote in the first place or even seen as someone that had a viewpoint so that that cloud of hierarchy kind of hangs over us from the beginning. I mean, when you say that, Shrita, it makes me think when I am in conversations about inclusive practices in the workplace today, what often gets missed out is the economic, is class, you know, whether we're talking about the UK, the US or beyond. Sometimes some of the splits that we need to look at historically are not so familiar to us today. So, for example, in the 19th century, there was a big debate about should single women have the vote because they don't have a male relative who can kind of represent them? Or should married women have the vote because they represent the kind of fulfillment of conservative ideas of femininity, right? They're good wives, they're good mothers, and therefore they're the best citizens. So there's some really interesting debates that don't necessarily correspond to what we think are important today. But I would also say that we've started with the vote almost because it's a kind of like, it seems like a fundamental building block. But there's another way of looking at it, which is to say that the vote was a relatively small ask that everyone could agree on. (laughs) And there were other issues that were really dividing feminist activism at the time. So for example, the divide over should the state intervene to protect working women from the kind of worst abuses of of employment in industrializing countries. Women were exploited by working with dangerous chemicals, very, very long hours, unsafe factories, night work. It was really, really tough for working class women in 19th century factories uh, all over the world. So there, there was a very divided debate on this where more privileged women often said they should have a free market for their labor. They should be allowed to work anywhere. And that's the best way for them to achieve emancipation and self-support. Whereas 
quite a lot of activists on in working class organizations said, no, no, the best thing to do would be to either get unions or the state to bring in like bans on women from working at night or bans on women for working uh, when they're pregnant or with dangerous chemicals. So, you know, th this was not an easy uh, issue on which to find agreement. And the vote was a kind of a glue that glued together these disparate elements of, of the women's movement and, and provided a kind of focal point on which everyone could agree briefly. And as we're talking about the role of the state or the role of legislation in looking at the lot of women, Lucy, take us into what's understood to be second wave feminism. Second wave feminism is commonly understood as coming at the sort of mid to late period of the 20th century. Sometimes we call it like post 68 feminism because it was so rooted in the kind of the rise of the counterculture, the new left, the peace movement, the people opposing the Vietnam War, um, the kind of left wing student movement and so on. All of those movements had these like very exciting new ways of doing politics and lots of women got really engaged in them, but also found that they were doing so on a kind of second rank basis. They were often expected to make the tea and have sex with radical revolutionary men. And they found this to be very unsatisfying and they developed their own critiques, which came together in a movement that in some parts of the world was known as the women's liberation movement. And I would say it's really different from the the first wave, so-called, if we take the first wave as a suffrage wave, because it was much more sharply directed against men and you know, forming a critique of men. Whereas in the first wave period, the emphasis was more on asking for rights from the state. Now, th those are kind of very like broad brush characterizations, but certainly the women's liberation movement experimented with things that you don't really see that much in the first wave, like women only working with other women and working in these kind of very grassrootsy activated ways that extended politics into the bedroom, into the kitchen, into um, the workplace, and at that very micro level of kind of almost micro injuries, refused to accept objectification and sexual harassment and workplace inequalities and contested who was going to do the washing up. And, you know, this went with huge rate, uh, social transformation in terms of divorces and women walking away from abusive or unsatisfactory marriages. So it was kind of like a huge social upheaval at that, at that very grassroots uh, level. And Shrita, what do you make of the way the conversation changed then? We're talking history, aren't we? But we are talking about that growing awareness of systems of patriarchy, of capitalism, and that pervasive impact. Personally, I really find the second wave really exciting to think about, and not necessarily in this metaphor of waves that we're using, but more about like the conversations that came about during that period, the organizing that was happening as well, in that like we had feminist organizing that wasn't organizing on single issue politics. There was organizing happening across the board and there was coalitions happening while also understanding how women and in particular women of color were still being marginalized from the very spaces where they were actively organizing and doing a lot of the care work to reproduce organizing in itself. And this is the period where we saw Black feminist thought, especially in the US, but outside of the US, really pick up. And like today, we still see influences of those thoughts in our organizing, especially when we think about intersectionality or ideas of interlocking 
forms of oppression or understanding that the systems of oppression, while we experience oppression differently, the systems are connected. And we, we can still see the influence of that kind of thought process in activist movements today and in some of our thinking and teaching today. And Shrita, intersectionality is a word that, that brings third wave feminism to mind for me. But but how how do you, would you describe that? You just said something about interlocking forms of oppression. But 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 can you tell us more about your understanding of what that means? So the reason I associate intersectionality not just to the third wave but to the second wave itself as well is because it didn't come out of a vacuum, right? We often under we often associate intersectionality to Kimberly Crenshaw, but she herself has said that that idea of interlocking forms of oppression she like has happened before and has has been talked about by um, the Third Woman Alliance, by the Kumbahi River Collective. We've seen that idea come about in different forms by lots of other black feminist thinkers and organizers, but it's just the one that's kind of been picked up and we've seen it almost, I think, diluted from its initial idea in the way it's been used almost for everything as a tick box almost when we think of intersectionality. But to answer your question, sorry, I started with a tangent. I guess when I think of intersectionality, I see it as both like a theoretical but also methodological tool that kind of helps us understand how there are different forms of oppressions which are intersecting and that we can't understand gender, racism, classism or oppression due to sexuality as different forms of oppressions that are not interconnected. So intersectionality asks people, asks us to see how these different forms of oppressions are interconnected and how therefore we experience violence in different ways due to sometimes the multiple forms of exploitation that we kind of experience. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Professor Delap, what, what, what comes to mind for you as being 
most of value about the concept of intersectionality? It's really turbocharged our understanding of like how people experience uh, oppressions. And I think it helps us in a kind of larger project of pluralization, of recognizing that there's not going to be one descriptor or kind of d- definition of what justice might mean when we think about the intersecting experiences of, as Shrita said, of, of racialization, of ableism, of um, homophobia. All these things play out together. And for me as a historian, I'm always fascinated by those resonances with earlier periods. And I would push back even you know, well beyond the sort of second half of the 20th century into the 19th century, uh, Sojourner Truth, who was a famous uh, enslaved, formerly enslaved woman who became one of the advocates for abolition. She showed, famously showed her breast at an at at abolitionist meeting and said, ain't I a woman? Pointing out that the kind of claims that white women were making on behalf of their w- womanhood were also experienced, and it was a, it was a language that she could use as a, as a black woman and a formerly enslaved woman, uh, but that it might mean something different for her. So she really raised in an incredibly powerful way that question of the intersections of race and gender, and we've expanded that as we as we go through into the 21st century with a, a kind of wider recognition of all these different intersecting axes, or what Patricia Hill Collins calls the, the matrix of oppression. So there's been so many people who've added to this really rich conversation about intersection, interlocking oppressions. And it's made the history of feminisms into a much richer affair to recognize that so many people have brought their experiences and brought different needs and different questions to the table, which is, again, to come round again to the wave metaphor, why that metaphor is so flattening and so so difficult for us if we're trying to tell that fuller story. And that expanding you talk about made me think about even, you know, in the last few weeks, we've we've been talking again about the inclusion of trans rights, the, the debate in Scotland, that these widening of debate, widening of parameters of reference that may have begun with what we're calling the third wave we're still trying to define what it means and what and what that means for a responsible feminist today. I mean, completely. I think that like the idea of intersectionality at least gives us the platform to understand that there's different kinds of feminisms and there's different kinds of solutions and that there isn't just a one fits all method to justice work or like feminist movement building. But like I said earlier, What I find really interesting around when we're thinking about feminist movements is if you speak to most feminists, they will tell you that feminism is undefinable. It's about doing justice work. And I like to pay attention to who tries to define what feminism is and who has access to feminism. And now you kind of mentioned transphobia and what we're seeing is, and it's always existed, but a group of people trying to define what feminism is and who feminism is for. And they, by doing this defining, they're not only are they actively excluding trans women and non-binary people, but they are fundamentally encouraging violence towards trans women and non-binary people and, uh, and women of color as well. When you think about like the idea of who has had access to womanhood in the past, it hasn't been women of color or black women. And we've seen that like being thrown out multiple times when you think about like Michelle Obama and some of the, some of the abuse she got, a lot of it had to do with 
a lot of people on the internet saying she wasn't a woman and therefore the idea of womanhood is already quite particular and therefore when you when you see people trying to define feminism they're also trying to define womanhood and it tends to be for a particular political purpose rather than for justice work yeah i i totally agree shrita and building on that I want to raise the question of, of who can do feminism, if you like, or who can engage in, in, in justice work and put men back in there. Because I do think that the kind of uh, the responses, the kind of transphobic responses that deny the presence of uh, trans women in the movement are also, in effect, denying the, the longstanding sense in which people of all, of all genders and non, non-binary people can be part of this movement. And I mentioned earlier that it's characteristic of the kind of post-68 moment that there's a kind of sharper critique of men. But I also think that's a really exciting time where men are building on actually earlier generations to say, well, men need to be part of this solution. They need to be part of the debate. They must respect women's perspectives and, and you know, sort of, you know, listen to them and, and, and be accountable to them. But men also have got work to do uh, in thinking about their their socialization, their emotional fragility or, or um, inadequacy, their parenting work, their care work, their uh, violence and their aggressive behavior towards women. You know, it's, it's super exciting when you get a kind of uh, feminist activism that also invites men to the table. And that isn't only in the late 20th century, because you also get it in the the, the suffrage era that we talked about uh, previously, where men are, are quite active uh, on behalf of women's claims to, to citizenship and to voting rights. And I would say throughout the anti-colonial uh, struggles, where often there's been forms of feminist activism that are very closely allied with nationalist or anti-colonial movements where men are very central. So if we if we widen our range a little bit in, in, in feminist history, we get a lot more involvement of uh, really interesting men, men like Frederick Douglass, uh, the US abolitionist, men like Jose Marti in the Cuban context, Cuban nationalist, movements where men have really been invited in and placed very centrally, such as in the wonderful organization Women in Nigeria, which made it always an invitation for men to be part of that movement and to be part of the struggle around Nigerian women's rights. At this point, I have to say, me too. The fourth, if we're talking about the wave metaphor, the fourth wave, me too, and the pushback against sexualized violence uh, and assumptions and behavior towards women. I mean, that's something where, in a way, you're coming back to earlier times and the men are the enemy kind of idea or trope. And there's also a very open question about, okay, what do men do here? As, as part of the movement and allies of the movement. Shrita Lakhani, what are your thoughts on how difficult it is to be a, a feminist man in today's feminist environment? I think being a feminist is always going to be difficult and uncomfortable. And if it's not, then we have a problem, right? Because feminism is all about building a better society. And that requires us to be reflexive of some of our participation in the very structures that causes violence towards women, non-binary people as well. And so I have to say, like, I think it's uncomfortable and difficult to be a feminist regardless of your gender because it requires us to do a lot of work. But, but if you're trying to change structures and systems, 
you surely need to to include as much as possible, which is why I'm bringing up men. I mean, I completely agree. I think that we need to include men and we need to include everyone in the feminist movement to change the structures, which is why a part of me really is drawn to abolition feminism. And I'm happy to talk about abolition feminism a little bit later. But you mentioned the Me Too movement um, in particular, and I think the Me Too movement is a very interesting movement or moment that happened because it's so tied to the kind of divide we have in feminism today, which is one which is very much rooted in neoliberal ideas and the other, which is slightly more radical. And Me Too stems from a lot of neoliberal ideas around feminism, which doesn't necessarily call for an overhauling of the system, but it kind of gives you the idea that inequality can be overcome through the state and the corporate environments. And therefore we're, we're having women call for the criminalization and the jailing of, of men that have committed violence rather than thinking about patriarchy as a whole and the forms of violence that create the environment for sexual harassment and gendered violence in the first place and we're not thinking about care or repair. I, I would like to hear both of your thoughts on abolitionist feminism. Shrita, would you would you define it if if you if you can it's hard in a nutshell that, isn't it? But but can you define what you mean by it for, for our audience? I might start with what is abolition first. So at least abolition is seen as a political vision, a form of structural analysis of oppression and practical organizing strategy that kind of changes the way we structure our society. And instead of structuring our society around punishment and violence, it encourages us to kind of build a society around care. And so quite often people think abolition is about just getting rid of the police right? But abolition is so much more than that. It's about rethinking how we deal with social issues from the ground up. It kind of asks us, what are we prioritizing in terms of funding? So it kind of says mental health care shouldn't be about criminalizing people and putting them in prisons. It should be about building proper resources. We should have more social support rather than harassing homeless people and letting them be homeless on the street. It's about thinking about when there is acts of gendered or sexual violence, how can we center with care the survivor rather than the perpetrator, which is what the current form of system does. And it also acknowledges that the systems we have, which is the police, the border and the state, how they enact violence continuously on lots of groups of people, which is gendered, racialized, sexualized, and classed. And it kind of calls for a coalition between different groups of organizing, which includes feminist organizing as well. Lucy, does abolitionism enrich the debate for you or not? I think as a historian who's done a lot of work on the sort of 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, what strikes me about that period is that the kind of debate about what should the state be doing is less prominent. And it's a period where there's a lot of kind of DIY solutions and activism, which is bypassing the question of state resources and talking about building from the community up. 
So in that period where we're talking about, say, experiences of, of, of violence and particularly sexual assault and sexual violence, the debate is all about how can the women's movement build resources for uh, victims and survivors of sexual violence? And, th and that's when you get all the fantastic refuges and helplines and support groups uh, setting up. They, they sometimes have their own sort of inbuilt exclusions. So there's a story to be had about, you know, is there a kind of racism problem in some of those shelters um, that you see in Australia or the United States or the UK? Uh, there is. <laughs> But I think it's a very productive moment where instead of like constantly um, turning to the state for action, people are asking, well, what can I do? And To come back to this question of kind of me too and where men should be in this story, well, men are part of that answer. They're not just the perpetrators. Sometimes they're the activists who are helping to support as crash workers or as uh, fundraisers or as you know various different kind of support roles. But men are also initiating conversations amongst themselves about violence and looking deeply at their lives to ask what kind of socialization leads to pervasive forms of violence? How do men benefit from uh, violence? But also how could men be beneficiaries from challenging patriarchal violence? And how could they live fuller lives in closer dialogue with women and children and other men? So, you know, you, you get actually quite a positive story there of a sort of a virtuous spiral whereby men's activism and women's activism can all sort of, you know, interlock to create better out outcomes for all. So in that sense, it's quite utopian. And I'd like to kind of rediscover some of that utopian energy in, in thinking about how we can build a less violent society. Shrita, where do you draw your hope from? I do draw my hope from abolition feminism, precisely because A, it doesn't look for the, it doesn't look at the state for an answer. It looks at finding answers in our communities and our grassroots work, but also because it offers us a space to actually connect different struggles together and build a movement that, in my opinion, can actually mean freedom for all and liberation for all rather than just a few which is why I get a lot of hope from abolition feminism. I think it's one of the first spaces where, which I have personally seen that doesn't encounter as many exclusions as other forms of feminist organizing may have had in the past. I wonder whether in the future, 20, 30 years from now, we'll be saying abolitionist feminism was the fifth wave. Do you think, Lucy, we will be talking about a fifth, sixth, seventh wave? Do you hope we I'm do little, or don't? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little skeptical about like the proliferation of waves. I mean, I suppose the nature of the metaphor of waves is that they keep crashing in on the uh, on the beach. I actually prefer the metaphor of radio waves, which a historian called Nancy Hewitt came up with as a way of thinking about like the kind of simultaneous struggles, the intersecting struggles that that Tree just talked about, where the radio waves talks talks to us nicely about these voices that are kind of being simultaneously broadcast. And sometimes some of them are strong, some of them are weak signals, some of them kind of dissolve into static. Some of them are creative and full of music. Others are kind of strident and, and violent. And I like that sense of the radio as a, a, a kind of richer metaphor for understanding the kind of plurality of feminisms. But going forward, what will we be saying about our kind of contemporary moment and the activism that it that it shows, I think 
it's a time when there's an incredible vitality of feminist activism that's coming from the global south. And when we look at the, the struggle against forms of violence, whether they're state-sponsored or whether they are sort of on an everyday quotidian basis, I think that the kind of excitement for me lies in the massive movement that's been sweeping um, Latin America, um, Central America, South America, that has been mobilizing women to insist on reproductive rights, to campaign against uh, male violence. I'm thinking of the Chilean movement that gave us the great like song and dance, Mbilado in Tu Camino, A Rapist in Your Path, which went global, went viral, was taken up by women in Bangladesh, women in Turkey, uh, by women in Poland, and, and, and gave this kind of incredible uh, you know, feminist power, powered up uh, through a creative art intervention powered up this struggle against violence against women. And Shrita Lakhani, I want to give the final word to you. I'm conscious that you're both educators, you both have students. And I'm really interested to know, you know, your new students today, are they engaged as feminists? Are they excited about feminism or do you do you have to sell it to them? Personally, I teach in the Center for Gender Studies. So the people that come to the course are already excited by feminist movements and feminism. And they actually they actually might come to the degree with like preconceptions of what feminism is. And so what's more exciting and interesting for me is to see their journey in that time space in understanding feminism in different ways and learning about different I like different feminist movements rather than just the mainstream ones that we are exposed to. So the students that come are definitely interested in feminism, but it's exciting to see how their idea of what feminism is is expanded and how we can how they learn from different feminist movements from around the world. Well, I hope they'll I hope they'll listen to you both and that it'll expand the conversation. Shrita and Lucy, thank you. That was Shrita Lakhani and Lucy Dilap. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I'm Philippa Thomas, and this episode was produced and edited by Catherine Hughes. Thank you for joining us.